Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. It's the fourth gospel, fourth book in the New Testament. As you're finding John chapter 1, I'm, I've got two really good pieces of news to share with you. One is Springer Kane's wife, one of our pastors, Laura Susan Kane, is delivering, her, delivering their fourth child as we speak, I think. Praise God. So pray for Laura Susan and little baby Hope. And then also, I just have some wonderful news from a brother in the church. I didn't ask for permission if I could share this, but I'm going out on a limb. Uh, We have a dear brother in the church. His name is Victor Malella. He is from India, which is another country altogether. And he has been here in the United States working for the last several years. And because of visa problems... His wife, Silvards, his, uh, her, she went back home to visit India a few years ago, and then uh, her visa ran out, and she has not been able to be here with him for the past few years. And so Victor has been here with his child, with their child, and he and Silvards have been separated, and just recently her visa was approved, and so she will be coming here to the United States, here to Columbus, to Cross Point. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Uh, I think it's the beginning of February, February 4th, and so if you know Victor, you're a friend of his, maybe reach out to him, find out how you can bless him and help him get his house or wherever he lives ready for his wife, because you know how men are. (laughs) And as we open up John's gospel, um, and let me pray before we even read the scripture and ask for the Lord's help, and let's pray. Uh, Let's give thanks to God for this little baby and for Victor and his wife. And let's pray for our new president and the new Congress that the Lord would be gracious. As the scriptures command us that we should, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2 that he urges that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for kings and those in high positions that we might lead a godly and dignified life, a peaceful life. And so let's obey the scriptures and pray for our government. Lord, let's, let's come, come down and pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for a little baby hope. Whatever the status is, whether she's already been born or maybe Laura Susan's in the middle of delivery now, we pray for grace. We're so grateful for this dear family that serves this church so faithfully. Thank you for their fourth child. I remember years ago when they were struggling with having their first child. And here, Lord, look what the Lord has done. You've given them four children. How gracious you've been. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful news of our dear brother Victor and his wife Silvards and how she will be able to join him and their precious son soon. Thank you, Lord, for opening the door for her visa. Lord, we pray grace as they reunite. We pray for her to get settled well here and make relationships in the church and that Crosspoint would be a blessing to the Malella family. Lord, we pray for our new president. We ask for grace to him, and we pray for our new Congress and all of the political changes and differences over the course of the last few months. Lord, we do 
recognize that you are sovereign over all authority and that you set up and you tear down for your divine and often mysterious wise purposes. We pray for wisdom for our president and our new Congress in the areas where we as Bible-believing Christians would disagree with his policy or his worldview. We do pray for grace to endure and we pray that you might change his mind in particular areas that are of particular biblical importance. We remember the proverb that says that the king's heart is a watercourse in the hand of the Lord and you change it however you wish. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in this particular term of political office. And we pray that you would guard our hearts from putting too much hope in any political process or any political change. Lord, our hope is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And give us the strange and beautiful wisdom of being people who are, live in this world but are not of this world. And now as we open up this beautiful gospel according to John, would you show us Christ? Would you build up your people for your glory, for our good, for the salvation of the lost? In Jesus' name, amen. Before I read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, let me just draw your attention to the purpose of John's gospel. We're going to be in John's gospel uh, for a while. Uh, we may not go straight through. We might take little breaks along the way, but I, we will certainly be in this gospel primarily for the rest of this year and into 2022. But listen to what John says at the end of his, almost at the end of his gospel in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He tells us the purpose of why he wrote this gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. He says in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so that's the purpose of John, that we would believe and that we would have life in his name. And this comes right after the account of the, the, the account of Thomas doubting Jesus and how Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, tells Thomas to put his hand in his side. And so this gospel is not just an evangelistic tract for people that haven't heard the gospel. This gospel is for believers so that we might believe more and that we might root our lives in the person and work of Christ. Let me read the first five verses. The first 18 verses of John chapter 1, which we'll be in for a few weeks, are what are called the prologue. And it's really John's introduction, really Woven into the first 18 verses is a kind of foreshadowing of everything that John wants to say in his gospel. So let me read verses 1 through 5. John writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light 
shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The first thing that I want us to see is Jesus' relationship with the Father. That's what I think these first few verses point us to, Jesus' relationship with the Father. These are some of the most famous words in the whole Bible. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. It says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word, capital W, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So let's look at Jesus' relationship with the Father, and that's what John is wanting to to show us here in these opening verses. There's three things that we can think about that we need to think about when we think about Jesus' relationship with the Father. And first is that Jesus, and this is how John uses, this is the, the, the word John uses, Jesus is the Word, capital W. Now, what does he mean by that when he says that Jesus is the Word? I think he's drawing on two worldviews. The first is this this Greek culture that John would have been part of. And in this Greek philosophical culture, this Greek word logos meant kind of an idea or a principle, a, a, a sort of philosophical tenet, an idea. Kind of like we would say today, like, hey man, what's the word, man? Like, what's the idea? And that's the notion here. But, but that's really not what John... John is using that word, I think, to identify with the world that he's speaking to. But I think he's drawing more primarily on what the Old Testament says about the Word. The Word of God. And what is the Word of God in the Old Testament? It's not merely an idea or a principle, but it's the action, the activity, the power of God made manifest in the world. Think about it in terms of creation. In fact, the whole Old Testament is filled with this idea of the Word of God coming and doing something, creating something. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, at the beginning of the Bible. In fact, John 1 kind of echoes Genesis chapter 1. And God said, verse 3 of the whole Bible, the first chapter of the Bible, let there be light. And there was light. God speaks and he creates. Psalm 33, verse 6 by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So the word of God creates, and we see also in the Old Testament that this idea of the word of God, the speaking of God, delivers. Listen to Psalm 107, verse 20. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. And then a famous verse, Isaiah 55, verse 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so you see in the Old Testament, and I think John is drawing on this when he calls Jesus the word, that Jesus is the creation, the creative power of God, and he's the delivering power of God manifest. That's what, what John is drawing on here. The word, the word, word encapsulates Jesus' entire ministry. And in fact, in a few verses, which we'll get to in the coming weeks, John chapter 1 and verse 14, John even defines it more specifically here, he says, and the word, in case there was any doubt that John is talking about some sort of 
am, uh, you know, some sort of theoretical principle. He, he dispels us of that when he says in John chapter 1 and verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so it may not be natural for us in our language to speak of somebody personally as the Word, but that's how John opens up his gospel. And he's drawing on this Old Testament image of Jesus, the Creator, Jesus, the Deliverer, God, the Deliverer. And he's connecting with the culture around him, this idea, this principle, and it has become manifest. It's, it's enfleshed. It's the incarnate presence of God that comes to dwell among us. Jesus is the Word. And then he says that the Word was with God. So here is just in the, the first verse of John, we have this kind of foreshadowing of this beautiful doctrine that is in shadow form in the Old Testament, but becomes clear for us in the New Testament. And it's the doctrine of the Trinity and the distinction between the persons of this one God. So the Old Testament is so clear that God is one. And now in the New Testament, we see this one God being clear, more clearly revealed in three persons, but yet still one. And you may be saying, how can we understand the beauty and the incomprehensibility of the Trinity? How can God be one and yet three? Exactly. It is inscrutable. God cannot be exhaustively defined by the human mind. But we can see this incomprehensible, inscrutable truth in Scripture. And although we cannot define it exhaustively, we can see it. And what should that cause us to do? It should cause us to worship and wonder at this wonderful God. And here, just in the first verse of John, he is foreshadowing, tipping us off to the doctrine of God himself, the beautiful triune God. Why, why is this important, by the way? Why is it important that we see God as Trinity? Well, because that's who God is. That's how he has revealed himself to us. But even on a more practical level, it is one thing to think of God as creator and sovereign and powerful. But it's another thing to know that even before God created the world in time, God has always been Father. He has been Son. He has been Holy Spirit. There is this communion of the Trinity. There is this relationship. There is this personalness that God is. And He invites us into that relationship. So the Word, Jesus the Son was with God the Father, and they are one. And then, lest we be mistaken about the true identity of this Word, this Son, he tells us that the Word was God. The Word was God, the very end there of verse 1. Now this is a really important statement, and this is a, a verse. We know that the New Testament was written in Greek, and this verse, this little last phrase of verse 1 here has been misinterpreted by some, in particular cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses that have wrongly interpreted the structure of John's Greek construction here 
And because there is no article before uh, the, the word was God, they have wrongly interpreted that the word is not fully God, but the word was a God, a kind of lowercase g, a divine being, but not fully God. And then they deduce from that that Jesus was created by the Father, and that dismantles the doctrine of the Trinity, which as we, will, as we get into the rest of John and really the whole New Testament, when you lose the full divinity, the triune nature of God, you end up losing the gospel because you have something less than God himself atoning for the sin and satisfying the holiness of God himself on the cross. And this wrong understanding of how just simple Greek works has led to uh, major theological errors throughout the centuries, and we see it manifested today in the Jehovah's Witnesses. If you want more information on that, talk to any of the pastors. We can point you to some good resources on that. But why is this important? Because what hinges on the right understanding of the full divinity of Jesus, the Godhead, is the very doctrine of salvation itself. We don't need just a good man or a created being to satisfy the wrath of God for sin. We need God Himself. This tips us off to the holiness of God and to the seriousness of sin that it will take not just the Son of God as a mere human, but the Son of God, God Himself in the flesh to be the only sufficient sacrifice to absorb the holiness of God, to ransom a people for Himself. That's why understanding even just this first sentence in John is so important. So Jesus is the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. But secondly, verses 3 through 5 tell us about Jesus' relationship to the world. Jesus' relationship to this world that he's created. Let me read verses 3 through 5 again. All things were made through him. So the him there is referring back to the Word, the Son. Jesus, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It's a kind of awkward sounding English sentence, but it's wanting to be utterly clear that nothing exists outside of the word who has created all things. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So there's three things that I want us to see in these few verses about Jesus' relationship to the world. First is that Jesus is the creator. All things were made through him and for him and by him. This is the testimony. This is what, what Tyler read for us from Hebrews chapter 1, that, that all things is upheld by the word of his power. We think of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, which we won't take the time to read, but it says that all things were created through him and for him and by him, and in him all things consist. And he creates everything. This is so important. He creates everything out of nothing. 
If you ever come across a Latin phrase when you're reading maybe a theological book or just something, a devotional book, and it says ex nihilo, that means out of nothing. And that's a biblical view of creation. God is not starting with anything. He starts with nothing. He made everything out of nothing. Why is that important? Because when we see this beauty of the doctrine of creation, that nothing existed outside of God, he starts with nothing and creates everything. This is great news when it comes to my personal salvation because God doesn't need anything to start with with you. He creates out of nothing. Not only has he created the farthest star, the, 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 the molecule in the farthest reaches of the universe. But he, out of nothing, but he can bring faith in your heart out of nothing. So when you, when you see, that's why places like Psalm 8 point us to the glory of God, the handiwork of God in creation when we look through a telescope or when we drive at night in the desert and we see the amazing numbers of stars, it should cause us not just to worship God for his greatness, but for his saving power, even in me, out of nothing. I love watching nature shows, you know, God's creation. You know, I do this every Saturday night because the BBC shows the planet Earth stuff and uh, God has created a bird in Australia called the firehawk, and this bird is a gangster. Apparently, this bird looks for forest fires and flies to forest fires because the bugs come up from the forest fires, and he eats the bugs. And when the fire starts to die down, this bird, this firehawk, grabs a smoldering stick picks it up and drops it on some dry grass and starts another fire so he can get more bugs. That's a gangster. That's an OG bird right there. And God, God has created that bird and that forest and those bugs that we will never see that jump up from the smoke that are consumed by a bird and he's he's using that in some providential way for the good of the environment because it actually helps to somehow preserve land god is so wise he can do everything with nothing so don't say that you are unqualified for Don't say that there's nothing in you. God doesn't need anything to start with. <laughs> and it's right there in verse 3. He makes everything out of nothing. And he brings salvation where there is no hope. Verse 4, in him was life and that life was the light of men. So the second thing I want us to see is that Jesus is life. His life, there's a, a kind of double meaning, a sort of foreshadowing. I think what John on the surface intends to say here is he's still in this line of Jesus is the creator that all life comes through him. But it's not just 
physical life. There's a kind of foreshadowing of spiritual life. Jesus isn't just the physical life. Not everything, it's not just merely that everything physically comes from him. Clearly that is true. But everything spiritually exists in him. Again, Tyler read it. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything in our bodies right now, this whole universe, the the millimeters of the rotation of the earth around the sun, every little thing is being held together by a sovereign, providential God. And he's not only giving life, he's giving spiritual life, and he is the life. I think of Psalm 1 that clearly charts out two ways to live. There's the way of the scoffer. Or there's the way being planted by the streams of water. And so as we read this book, we are going to have to contend with this great truth. And we're going to have to wrestle with this truth that Jesus is life. And much of the Christian life is fighting that fight and reminding ourselves that life only exists in Christ. That he alone can satisfy. That by believing, we may have life in his name. Jesus is the life. And thirdly, Jesus is, I love this. Again, I think he's, there's a kind of double meaning here to what John is saying. Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Again, I think on the surface, he's referring to the creative act of Jesus hearkening back to Genesis 1 where God says, let there be light. And there's a kind of physicality to that. Just there's light, and the darkness is, is pushed back. It's subservient to the light. And clearly, there's a, a physical aspect of, of that. When we turn on the lights in this room, the darkness can overcome the light. The light is more powerful than the darkness in a physical sense. The sun is more powerful than the darkness, which is the absence of sun. But clearly, there's a foreshadowing here of the spiritual work of Christ. He shines his glory, his goodness, and he invades. This is the mission of Jesus that we're going to read about in John. He not only creates, but here's what John is, is, in, is intending to show us in this opening of his, of his gospel, is that this creator God, who is God himself, becomes a man, and he breaks into His creation. He comes for us. That's the message of John. That this creator, this good God, this son, comes for us. And he comes for us because we are fallen. Because this world that he has created, he has for his wise, sovereign, mysterious, glorifying purposes, he has allowed it to fall into sin so that he might send his son to break into the creation and to come for it and to shine its light in it so that he might be glorified and that we might believe. So as we begin this series on John, I I conclude with just this exhortation, this lens, if you will, Let's read John, let's bask in John, not as a mere survey of the gospel so that we might know more about 
this text, although that is a, certainly a good thing to do, but that we would read it with what John is cluing us into here at the beginning, that the light shines into the darkness of this world and my life and our lives, and he's coming for us. Let's read it personally. So when we get to John, later on John chapter 1, and we read where he encounters these two brothers, and he says, come and follow me. Let's read that to ourselves. When we get to John 2, and we read about Jesus at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and we see that Jesus changes water into wine. Let's, let's, let's see past that and see that he's coming for us. He takes the mundane things. When we run out, when we are exhausted, when we don't have any more supply, Jesus turns our mourning into joy. He turns water into wine. When we get to John 3 and we read about his interaction with Nicodemus, and we read about the glory and sovereignty of God and salvation, that the Spirit of God blows where it wills, and that we must be born again. And our only hope is that God would give us new life. Let's read that personally. He's coming for us. And in John chapter 4, when we read about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, Jesus comes upon her, and it's this incredible interaction. He, he says, hey, hey, go, go call for your husband. And she says, well, um, actually, I don't have a husband. And he, and he looks right through, and he says, you know, you're right. You've actually had five husbands, and the guy you're with now is actually not your husband. And Jesus doesn't distance himself from people like that. And oh, by the way, not only that, she was a Samaritan, which would have meant that she was an outcast according to God's people. And Jesus comes to her, and he, he explains to her the meaning of what it really means to worship God. And he comes to this woman who wouldn't have been qualified in the world's eyes, and oh, by the way, was the hated Samaritan, and he comes for his people. When we get to John chapter 5, we're going to read about this man. He is, he's an invalid. He's, he's paralyzed. He's on a mat. And he's, he's been that way for 38 years. And he's, he's dragging himself to this pool at Bethesda because there's this superstition. You know, we're such, we're goofy people. We like little, you know, goofy superstitious things. Anything that'll work. We're vulnerable. And he's been on a mat, paralyzed for 38 years, dragging himself to try and get to this pool, thinking that if he can dip himself in it, he'll get healed. And because he can't move, people keep passing him by. And he's been this way for 38 years. And Jesus comes to him. He comes to him. And this man, he's not been that way for six months. He's been that way for 38 years. And Jesus comes to him. And he heals him. And we get to John 6, and, and we see where Jesus 
feeds the multitudes and he walks on the water and he promises us that all that the Father has given me will come to me. Jesus announces that his mission will be completed. He will not leave any of his people behind. Jesus tells us he doesn't merely just make salvation possible. Jesus actually accomplishes his salvation for his people and he will do it. And it concludes Peter to say at the end of John chapter 6, where else can we go? After everybody leaves him because the crowds leave him, the people that just go because they want to see a show, because they want to see a cool band, or because they want a nice vibe in church, eventually they fade away. Eventually they go. And Jesus says, are you guys going to go too? I mean, I just walked on. I mean, talk about people, pe- people left Jesus after he walked on water and fed the multitudes because he preached a hard sermon. <laughs> And Jesus says, are, are you guys, boys, are you going to leave too? And, and Peter just concludes rightly, where else can we go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. And we're going to get to John 7, and Jesus, Jesus is going to show us. He's going to say, who's thirsty? Who really wants to drink of this water which can only quench your thirst? And out of him will flow rivers of living water. And then we'll we'll get to John 8, and we we need to remember that it's not just this wonderful story in the Bible, but Jesus is coming for people like this. And there's this woman caught in the most shameful of experiences. She is caught in the act of adultery, and Jesus comes for her, and he kneels down with her in her shame, with all of her accusers around her. He writes in the dust, and he says to the woman, no, 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 I don't condemn you. Who, are, who, are, who is it that condemns this woman? Let him cast the first stone. Let him, who else is, with, who's without sin? And all of this accusatory crowd fades away, and Jesus looks at this woman who he has come for, and he says, get up. Follow me and sin no more. Jesus comes for people like that. In John chapter 9, we'll read about the man born blind. Is it because he sinned? The religious leaders asked. What did he do? Was it his parents? What, what is it? Karma has caught up with this family because they're cheats and stealers and they haven't done all that they needed to do. What is it, Jesus? Why is this man, what's the cause and effect that would cause this man to be in this situation? And this is what Jesus says. He says, this man was born blind so that the works, the glory of God might be revealed in him. And he heals him. And we get to John 10. And we need to remember that he is coming for us us. He's the good shepherd. And when the shepherd puts you in his pasture, nothing will snatch you out of his hand. And John 11, come on now, John, John 11. Lazarus. We're Lazarus. Jesus is coming for us. And Jesus, this is amazing. Jesus, the one who knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, Mary and Martha, his sisters, are crying. They're mad at Jesus because Jesus took his own sweet time to get to the tomb of Lazarus. If he would have showed up earlier, he could have healed Lazarus before he actually died. And Jesus, knowing that he's about to bring his friend Lazarus back from the grave, doesn't shush the sisters and scold them for their sorrow. Jesus weeps with them. 
And so the glorious God who's coming for his friend Lazarus to bring him back from the grave has come to enter into the grief of his sisters. Jesus weeps and then Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead. Jesus is coming for his people and his people start out dead and he brings them back to life. And in John chapter 12, we'll we'll read where Jesus now transitions and he sets his heart towards Jerusalem. And he begins the triumphal entry. And he says that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And then when he gets there, we read in John chapter 13 and we realize that this is the God, this is the Son, this is the Word, this is the Jesus that's coming for us. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. That's who's coming for us. Jesus, who, he washes your feet, man. That's a symbol for he washes the dirt off of us. All the dirt in between the toes, man. He knows it all. Jesus washes the dirty, stinky feet of his people because he's a God who doesn't stay in heaven. He breaks into creation and he comes for us. In John chapter 14, we we need to see that he's, he's the God who comes for us and he tells us, when I come for you, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. In other words, when he comes for us, he reminds us that this place, this world is not our final home. And he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then we get to John 15 and we realize that Jesus comes for us and he tells us that he's the true vine and that we are the branches and that we must be connected to the vine. We must bear fruit. Our lives matter. Jesus comes for us for a purpose to bring his glory and goodness through us so that through our lives he might come for other people. In John 16, we'll get to it, and he teaches about the Holy Spirit. He says, I will not leave you alone. You won't be an orphan. I'm giving you a helper. I'm coming for you, and I'm going to stay with you, and my spirit will be with you, and he will guide you into all truth. And then we're going to read in John chapter 17 this glorious prayer of Jesus, where Jesus is praying a priestly prayer, not just for his disciples, but for us. And he's going to pray, Jesus is praying for you. You know, in Romans chapter 8, where it says that Jesus is interceding for us, well, we get a picture of his intercessory prayer in John 17, where Jesus says, Father, be with them. Glorify your son now in your name and bring them into the fellowship that we have. And guess what, friends? Jesus is praying prayers always get answered. Jesus is coming for us. And then in John chapter 18, we read about how he's arrested and betrayed and denied. And we look at Peter and we don't shake our heads, but we know that we would have denied him just like Peter does. In fact, we deny him every day, but yet Jesus comes for us. And then John chapter 19, Jesus dies for us. The the creator dies at the hands of of his creation, and God pours out his wrath on God who satisfies the glory of God and gives us the righteousness of God so that we might be reconciled to God. And then Jesus rises again. He defeats death. The tomb is empty. He comes for us. 
And then in John chapter 21, Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, he eats breakfast with scared little Peter. And Peter, who just days before had denied him famously, Jesus, as he's frying up a breakfast of fish in John chapter 21, doesn't even bring it up. Peter, before I ascend to heaven, man, I'm about to build my church on you. Couple things we need to talk about. What was going on around the campfire? Why did you, what, come on. Jesus doesn't even bring it up. But he tells Peter who he's come for. This man who failed him so disastrously days before, he says, Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Don't worry about John. Don't be jealous. Get your eyes off of that. Feed my sheep. Friends, as we journey through John, let's behold the word became flesh who comes for people like us. Dead people, adulterers, dirty feet deniers. Jesus comes for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this this opening to John. Stir our hearts, Lord. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you've written these things so that we might believe and believing we might have life in his name. Do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.